strengthening of these climate services and the delivery remains very key to continue to reduce economic losses and uh, the mortality rates. And East Africa as a Swatch is a very good example of how innovation, data visualization, automation, and cross-organization collaboration can lead to better decisions and support adaptation and resilience to climate change. This is Data Points, a podcast from Berkeley Earth. Thank you for joining us as we kick off the 2022 season of Berkeley Earth's podcast, Data Points. On February 28th, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the second installment of the AR6 report cycle, namely the Working Group 2 report on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. Taking a detailed look at the socioeconomic impacts of climate change at the regional level, the report issued an urgent call to action for stronger commitments for climate change mitigation and increased funding for adaptive measures. In light of this recent report's focus on adaptation, we are honored to be joined today by Abu Bakar Salih Babikar, Eric Otenyo, and Marta Baribar of the EGAD Climate Predictions and Applications Center, also known as ICPAC to discuss how their work is using environmental and climate data to bring crucial adaptive climate services to 11 countries in East Africa through their East Africa Hazards Watch platform. Let's get into the episode. So welcome, Abu Bakar, Eric, and Marta. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourselves and the work you do with ICPAC. Uh, Marta. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Marta. I work at ICPAC in Climate Information Services. Hi, I'm Eric Coteño. I also work at ICPAC as a web and GIS developer. Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Abu Bakr. I formerly used to work for ICPAC and now I work for the World Meteorological Organization, the regional office for Africa. I'm based in Addis Ababa. Wonderful. So we know that ICPAC is a regional climate center that provides climate information services to 11 East African countries. Um, Marta or Eric, do you wanna go ahead and just tell us a little bit more about about the work your organization does? Uh, Yes, so I can uh, speak a little bit about ICPAC. So as you say, we are a climate center, a regional climate center at the East Africa region. We are serving 11 countries. And uh, we provide climate services, among other things like building capacity to the national uh, meteorological agencies, and basically to help build climate resilience in the region, among other services. So let's talk a little bit about Africa um, in the big picture before we get specifically into the work you do. So the recent Working Group 2 report from the IPCC had made a statement that Africa has contributed among the least to historical greenhouse gas emissions responsible for anthropogenic climate change and has the lowest per capita greenhouse gas emissions of all regions currently. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the vulnerability of the African content um, and natural resources in light of climate change. Um, Yes, so basically like the African economies are really dependent on natural resources and rainfall. Only 4% of farmlands have functional irrigation systems. And rain-fed agriculture is a major livelihood activity for over 70% of the population. 
Um, the World Bank and FAO estimate that about a quarter of the continent's GDP comes from agriculture. Uh, the continent is also warming faster than the global average. Most of the cities in East Africa, for instance, have warmed by more than two degrees. And this is with the current warming of 1.2 degrees. Uh, heat waves are also increasing in frequency and intensity, and this is expected to continue in the years to come. Recently, uh, researchers have determined definitively that the number of extreme climate and weather phenomenon such as heat waves, such as extreme rainfall, floods, uh, that many of these events are linked to climate change and would not be possible without the impacts of climate change. Uh, so maybe you can speak a little bit about some of these extreme events. Well, uh, this is a good point actually, and uh, it's very noticeable also in the Eastern part of Africa because it is neighboring to the Indian Ocean. And it has been also um, reported uh, in the literature, in the academic literature, that uh, in multiple papers that the Indian Ocean is warming up. And there is uh, even a report for expansion of what is called the warm pool. There is an area that is called the warm pool, a part of the Indian Ocean, area that's relatively warmer than the rest of the ocean. But this area is also been expanding westward toward the coast of uh, East Africa. So, and, and the Indian Ocean is warming rapidly for the past uh, 100 years. It is the fastest warming part of the tropical ocean system. And, and, and this, um, this warming over the ocean has led to intensifications of uh, different uh, form of what is known as climate variability. They are not usually climate change, but the normal variation in the, in the system, uh, but they are intensified because of this uh, anthropogenic warming. So for example, um, we have seen uh, a severe um, uh, El Nino event uh, or uh, also severe cases of something we call Indian Ocean Dipole, which is also some form of variation in the ocean temperature. Those, those kind of events, when they become very strong, they cause very severe uh, weather and climate events on, on uh, the coast of uh, East Africa. For example, the case of a uh, very famous case of the El Nino of uh, uh, 1997 up to 2000, um, uh, the year 2000, between drought and flood, uh, Kenya lost about 14% of its uh, GDP due to those uh, two, two, two strong uh, variation or extremes wow. that driven by the warmer ocean. Yeah. In recent year, we have seen also in 2000, the year 2000, uh, 2020, very strong uh, case of uh, Indian Ocean Dibu that caused flood over East, uh, East Africa. For example, Djibouti, an area that is usually dry, but in, in two days, the city of Djibouti received about 338 millimeter uh, of rain of rainfall uh, in four days. That is uh, the, the total amount of like two years of, of rainfall for a, a country like Djibouti or a city like Djibouti city itself. So those are cases and example of how the warming over the ocean has caused a severe event in East Africa. Wow. So understanding that these severe events are having perhaps an outsized impact on the economy, livelihoods, 
and knowing the trends, the climate trends, let's talk a little bit about adaptation and capacity for adaptation. So the work you do is specifically focused on adaptation. Tell us a little bit about uh, how, what adaptation looks like in this context. How do you work to uh, both mitigate and, and, and adapt to these events? Uh, so one thing that is incredibly important uh, to adapt to those increasing extremes is to have efficient climate services. And this includes also better data and better models to predict these, ex these extremes like droughts, floods, cyclones, heat waves, or pest outbreaks, which are increasing in frequency and intensity. Uh, the way that the climate services are delivered to the user uh, is also incredibly important. It's a gap of climate services. Often these warnings and this climate information that we produce in climate centers or um, organizations that are in charge of producing climate information, sometimes they do not reach users. Uh, so the decisions that they have to make do not benefit from this information. So having more user-friendly formats, ensuring that the information is delivered on time is, is extremely important to improve the adaptive capacity of people. Let's talk a little yeah. bit. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you can add to that point is uh, that uh, the, all the major uh, the development gains that happened in Africa in the past uh, uh, maybe 30 or 40 years, that they happen in the areas that are really sensitive or like climate sensitive sectors, mm. um, like agriculture, uh, livestock, um, uh, and you name it. Those areas are sensitive to, to climate and, um, uh, in, and, and climate information can play a major role uh, in helping them to adapt to the, to the new climate regime that uh, resulting from climate change. Better data, for example, uh, Africa is is uh, really uh, you could say uh, not well covered mm. with uh, observational network. So there are major areas um, that in Africa, the UAE you find no observational network, no uh, meteorological station. So there is data gap, and without data, you will not be able to do good modeling. You will not be able to, to, to generate better ser good services or quality services. So that is what is needed in terms of infrastructure, putting um, meteorological infrastructure in the ground that can help with, with improving the services. Yeah, the, the physical infrastructure, the hardware uh, necessary to collect these observations. I think that's a, that's a great point. Marta, I want to just go back to something you said about more user-friendly formats and that a lot of these climate services aren't necessarily reaching um, the end users. And I was hoping you could speak perhaps a little bit more about that, uh, what the current um, kind of user paradigms are and what some of the obstacles are to getting this information, this data to the people who need it. Uh, yeah, so while, uh, while, while in the private sector, there is a big tradition of engaging customers in uh, product uh, and service uh, development, and even in product research, it's not so much of a tradition in the public sector to involve the users of this kind of public services in the production of the service of the climate service in our case. So these are areas that are currently being improved, ensuring that uh, climate services are co-produced with the users, which traditionally did not used to happen. 
So we're learning a lot about um, using participatory processes to engage the users in in-depth conversations, focus group discussions, um, user surveys to understand their needs, uh, to understand whether they're satisfied with the current products. So we're currently working a lot in in, in these areas to improve the way uh, that the service meets the user needs. So let's talk about. Uh, some of the Africa-specific impacts um, of climate change, and then we're going to get into your data platform specifically, uh, because I know a lot of the a lot of the current products that you have related to your Hazards Watch platform seek to address some of these um, these very Africa-specific impacts. So perhaps you could speak a little bit about what you're seeing um, on the ground and and how these are impacting uh, po populations in Africa. Great. Uh, for, for Africa, there, there is a, a new report actually recently published from WMO, which, uh, which was a global actually report on, uh, on mortality and, and economic losses from disasters. And, and, and it was a very good report that was like covering 50 years from 1970 to 2019. And in that report, uh, it, it, it reported that Africa experience about 15% uh, of the number of global uh, natural disasters. 15%, but the, 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 the experience about 35% of the total uh, global death from, from those disasters. And, and this can give you an example for the, uh, the, the weak capacity, because when, when communities are developing communities like Africa, in Africa, they, they do not have that coping capacity. And this is clear in the case of, although, for example, it, uh, floods are more prevalent, but drought is a major cause of this. And this is likely linked together with the, with, the, with the number of deaths because it is, or the percentage of the deaths, because those communities have, have a low coping capacity. When they're hit by disasters, they really, it really have a very strong impact on it, on the communities and on the lives and the livelihoods of the communities. And that is, that is what happened in the past. Uh, I know one of the impacts we read about frequently are the locusts and the insect swarms uh, in East Africa and their impact on agriculture. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about how that's affecting the region and also how climate change is driving uh, some of those infestations, I guess you could say. Yeah, yes. Uh, regarding the locusts and, and the pest, uh, we know that the desert locusts, for example, has been here before, uh, before this issue of climate change. But in the recent, uh, the recent case of infestation that affected East Africa, and it was the worst case, for example, of uh, desert locust impact in, in Kenya in 70 years, it was the worst in 25 years in Ethiopia. And it was driven by or linked by to climate change because it was uh, it, it started in the, in the desert region of Saudi Arabia. And it started due to very strong tropical cyclones that developed over the western part of the Indian Ocean in the Arabian Sea. And then they made landfall over the desert region of Saudi Arabia. Area is called the area called the empty quarter. Just referring to it, it is an empty desert. And usually it doesn't receive rainfall because it, that's why it's a desert. But in this case, because the tropical cyclone was very strong, was very powerful, it crossed um, 
far inland and caused heavy rainfall over the desert region. And, and then another tropical cyclone also hit the, the same area. So two tropical cyclones in a span of five to six months that led to development or, or created the, 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 uh, the suitable environment for the desert locusts to breed. And then from there, it migrated to, to Yemen and then to the eastern part of Africa, uh, affecting the whole region. And, and that is why it has been linked uh, to the, as a new uh, manifestation of climate change impact in the mm. region. Wow. So let's talk specifically now about the IPCC report that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the IPCC report gave us some projections of what to expect in the future. So maybe you could touch a little bit of, touch on those a little bit. Great. Um, the, the, the IPCC, the, the recent report indicated that um, the, the frequency and intensity of heavy rainfall event are projected uh, to increase in Africa. Um, this is one of the, the major alarming issue because as we said, it is a, a community that is having very low uh, adaptive, uh, coping uh, capacities to, to extreme uh, events. The issue also of um, uh, those drivers, what we call them the drivers of variability, for example, like the, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, the Indian Ocean Dipole, those are also expected in the future to have more frequent and strong variability. So when and they vary, for example, El, 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 El Nino usually uh, cause drought in the part of Ethiopia, Sudan, and most of the African Sahel. Um, and and, and El Nina uh, cause uh, flood, for example, for the same region for Ethiopia and Sudan. In the year uh, to, 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 uh, the year 2020, we have seen the worst flood in Sudan due to uh, La Nina uh, episode uh, in the west in the eastern part of the, of the Pacific region, and vice versa for the the region of Central Africa like Kenya and and uh, Uganda where. La Nina usually caused drought. So if those episodes became more frequent, so we, we are more likely to see uh, oscillation between extremes. So communities will have very little time to recover between uh, extreme uh, events. Uh, the IPC report also indicated that the mean temperature uh, has been increasing beyond the natural uh, variability and that the observed increase in hot extremes, including heat wave and the de decrease of the uh, cold wave episode, those are also uh, projected to, to continue in the future. Uh, one other aspect also for Africa is that there are some glacier in the, in the mountain of Africa, for example, Mount Kenya, Mount Kilimanjaro, on, on those uh, mm. uh, height, they have glaciers and this glacier system usually support the ecosystem around it and it is a source of water so it accumulates during the winter time uh, and then it melts so providing source of water but those glaciers are expected also to vanish due to the global warming by uh, roughly somewhere in uh, by uh, 2040 we might lose them completely and they, they definitely will have impact on the ecological systems on the on the lives of, or livelihood of the communities living around this area because they depend on it as a source of water all right so let's move into what we're doing to adapt to these projected changes 
um, and specifically uh, your hazards watch data platform. Uh, so in the IPCC report, they did mention that early warning systems based on targeted climate services, like the Hazards Watch data platform, can be effective for disaster risk reduction, social protection programs, and managing risks to health and food systems. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your Hazards Watch platform, and then we can get into how that is helping these populations to adapt. Yes. Thank you very much. So the East Africa Hazards Watch um, is a tool that you have developed here at TICPAC to try and address some of these uh, challenges that we're facing in terms of early warning. And as we have uh, observed, the disasters globally, the death toll has decreased. And this is generally due to the improvement of the early warning system. But Africa uh, remains with a gap in terms of development of these systems and the availability and, you know, the ability to process and visualize some of this risk information. And uh, it is very key to continue to improve cross-border public multi-hazard warning system and take into consideration uh, the new climate change projections in any of the decisions that are made based on these uh, data, different data sources. And um, strengthening of these climate services and the delivery remains very key to continue to reduce economic losses and uh, the mortality rates and they start as a switch is a very good example of how innovation data visualization automation and cross-organization collaboration can lead to better decisions and support adaptation and resilience to climate change so this tool uh, it's able to collect store and analyze uh, data from different hazards and different sources and its ability to present the risk information in one platform helps to give a very holistic view into the hazards that are affecting the region. And most importantly, the system is able to show the impact of a given hazard or an extreme event on the population and the infrastructure. And we achieve this by overlaying the risk information that we obtain from the forecast with other socioeconomic information to try and understand the vulnerability of the population and the risk and its ability also to monitor specific uh, areas of interest. You know, you're able to focus into a given area, understand all the information that's available for that area and have that complete view of the different hazards from different sectors. So this includes uh, information from climate change, uh, climate forecast, agriculture warnings, we have best predictions, food security from different uh, agencies within the region, and also environmental and socioeconomic data. So when we bring this together, we are able to have a good understanding of the hazards that are affecting the region. So the system is a new tool, it's an online tool. You can access it at any time, understand the data in the region, and we are currently even working to improve it to have better impact-based information. So this is to also include the different climate projection to see how they will affect the different sectors like agriculture, energy. How does this relate with the current uh, data that we have in terms of forecast and also observation data? So we are currently also looking into um, upscaling this system to work with the different uh, national meteorological agencies within the region to see how they can better utilize this tool to inform and you know, visualize their data and generally to enable them to give better climate services in a well-packaged format that allows anyone to quickly understand uh, 
uh, the system and the forecast and the information so as to make better decisions. So we have different users of the system so far. The system has been on, in operation for around uh, two years now. And uh, we have had different intergovernmental agencies, including the UN reaching to us. We have the, for example, the United Nations mission in South Sudan. They're able to use the system to, to monitor different areas like the flood prone areas, uh, they, you know, understand food insecurity hotspots. And uh, we are trying to make this data available so that it can even give more uh, uh, ability to make informed decisions. We have different uh, NGOs, for example, Doctors Without Borders reaching to us, telling us on how we can improve the system to better work with what their, their, their operations on the ground. And generally, our aim is to try and reach as many intermediary organizations as possible and provide them with timely, actionable, and decision-ready information so that this information then can be further channeled to the last mile using different mediums that target some of these communities that might not have direct access to the system. So basically, uh, that's, that's about the Azad Swatch uh, platform. Yeah. So your platform uh, aggregates a number, aggregates data from a number of different sources. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you're getting this data and how the platform is aggregating and integrating a lot of different types of data in one place. Yes. So the system, uh, that's the biggest ability or the advantage of it is that it aggregates this information from all these different sources and then puts them in one harmonized platform. So for example, specifically talking on climate change data, we're able to pull different climate change sources. So a very good example is the Beckley Earth uh, cities temperature data that we have in the platform. And basically we, we were able to collect this information, pull it directly from Beckley Earth website and put it on the system and enable our users to click on any point. And then they are able to see the different trends from this data. And uh, so that's one example. You also have a projection that we obtained from the downscale uh, codex data. So this is the climate change projections information that we have for the previous uh, uh, IPCC reports. And we're even currently working to, to have the latest information on climate change updated to the system. But yes, that's, that's an example of how we are able to collect this information from the different sources and then harmonize them together on the platform. Yeah. If we could, I'd like to just talk a, a little bit in more detail about one or two specific scenarios. And I think food security is a really interesting one because that sits at the intersection of so many different, uh, we'll just say data components. You do have climate change. You also have agriculture. Uh, you have economics involved in that. So I was hoping we could just go into a little bit more detail, let's say about how your platform integrates the data, what kind of data you're, you're pulling in for a scenario like food security, and then what are, what is, what is the data showing and, and how are people using, let's say the food security uh, scenario projections in order to improve outcomes? Uh, yes. <clears throat> so as you said, we have different uh, data sources and uh, the system allows to collect, that's one, uh, main uh, major advantage of the system is that it can pull different from different, uh, it can pull data from different partners. So talking specifically on the food security data, 
we pull this data from one of the platforms in the region, which is the IPC, it's one of our partners here at ICPAC. So they work together with some of the agencies and groups uh, in the region to provide periodic food security updates. So for example, they give maps on the different situations. They're usually color-coded. They are showing you areas that are uh, likely to face famine, areas that are improving, areas that are, you know, the different food classification phases. So with this information and how we display it on the system, you are able to have an understanding by looking at the color codes, we explain the different colors and you're able to understand what is the current situation of food insecurity for any given area. So you can do analysis for a point, you can do analysis for an administrative unit, you can do analysis for the whole country. So by coupling this information with other sources, so for example, you are looking at the drought info, uh, forecast, drought monitoring products, you're able to understand what is the current food situation, insecurity situation, and what is likely to, for example, occur in the next months if you know the situation continues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you have this information, you're able to understand and make better decisions. Yeah. One other thing you mentioned was getting this information to kind of last mile users. And maybe you could speak a little bit about those and how you are, some of the solutions that you're looking at to overcome getting this data uh, to the users who could really benefit from it. Uh, okay. Yes, so reaching the last mile is really a very important topic. And uh, as, as ICPAC, we, we also aim, as I said, the tool, we, we, we try to reach past the intermediary uh, organizations who can then channel this information using other mediums. So for example, radio is a, big, uh, is a big medium in the region. So once you package this information, you make the, for example, the journalist understand how to translate this information, how to interpret it, and then they are able to use the most relevant medium. For example, they, when they now understand the maps, they can now take that information, use radio to communicate this to, to the community, the last person, the last mile who can then understand it. And, you know, in, uh, based on the interpretations that they have been communicated. So that's that's one of the way we do it. And um, maybe Martha, you want to add something? You want to add something on that? Um, no, I mean, just that, uh, yeah, as you said, Eric, like as a, as regional uh, climate center um, covering 11 countries, our goal is to reach intermediary organizations. And then the work of, of getting that message to the end user is really up to the intermediary organizations. We do train a lot of intermediary organizations, like mm -hmm. Eric said, like journalists, on how they should uh, use the systems that are available and, and how to access information that is openly available uh, to, to communicate it to their audiences. Uh, I think there's a, there's a big if science. I may add yeah. here, yeah, if I may add just quickly to this point is that one of the big advantage of this system is that uh, it, it is interactive in the sense that it enable you to zoom into really, really specific area. Before climate services from different uh, provider, I, I, providers is given in, in a static format. So you, you get a map, for example, or in a PDF uh, file or something like that, mm -hmm. something static. You cannot move it, uh, you cannot go into 
uh, small uh, scale. And, and But with this system, it became more interactive. The user can even go down into um, a state or a county, or even you can go into a particular area like a farm. If you know, for example, the location of your farm, you can put the coordinate longitudinal latitude of your farm, and you can you can receive, for example, specifically what is the expected rainfall for this uh, area over your farm. Or you can wow. uh, by by clicking on the map, you can also go down to that level. I think this is a really great advantage, and 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 make the information in a sense that can be user targeted or like location specific, something like. This is a very uh, great added value and innovative uh, part of the system. It's it's a very impressive system, and I think you you also speak to the work of science communication and how we make all of this data, which can be so technical, uh, accessible to the populations that need it. So um, I think it's it's really incredible work that that your group is doing on this platform. Um, just moving a little bit away from the specifics of it, uh, the impacts of this adaptation, you know, this is reaching, as you say, you know, very specific populations in very specific locations with information that can help them plan to mitigate impacts of either heavy rainfall or, or drought, so on and so forth. But uh, what does this look like going forward in the bigger picture of adaptation? Uh, what are kind of some of the socioeconomic impacts of this? And how does this relate to our global need to decarbonize uh, and mitigate climate change sort of writ large? Uh, so as, as Abu Bakr said before, like um, most of the development gains that happened in Africa over the past decades happened in uh, climate dependent sectors. Uh, so moving forward, it is very important that to continue development gains and to continue to build on what has happened, um, that uh, we really step up finance and climate ambition, both for adaptation and mitigation, um, because the current pledges are not enough, like they're not nearly enough, both public and private finance and, and ambition has to really increase in the coming years like the latest ipcc report showed that we only have 10 years to act so it, it's really 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 short time to act um i mean looking at the at what 1.2 degrees of warming is is already bringing us to africa yeah. right like uh yeah. so like 1.2 degrees brought us a record of cyclones pest outbreaks like the desert locust uh, an increase in density and frequency of droughts, floods, with very low adaptive capacity of communities. So if this happened with a warming of 1.2, what would three or four degrees bring us? Uh, and this is the current, the current scenarios are uh, pointing at even more than four degrees. Uh, so we would really, we would really like to actually like make a call to action to increase ambition um and finance for adaptation and of course mitigation as well to decarbonize economies to the green transitions um because everything costs money both adapting to these extremes that are already hitting the continent and uh transitioning to green technologies in this uh, same point uh, i think we should also remember that africa is also Although with all those uh, ramifications of climate change, it is the least contributor, of course, to uh, greenhouse uh, to the emission of greenhouse gases. 
So for example, Africa, I think um, uh, the number is about 3.6%. Uh, this is the contribution of Africa to the green, uh, to the global greenhouse, uh, to the emission of greenhouse, greenhouse gases. <laughs> so it, it, it contributes very, very little in terms of uh, emission, but it, it, as it, it needs to develop, uh, it will emit more. But if we follow green paths, maybe this can be like a leapfrog. So Africa could avoid the same uh, fate that the, the, the developed country already gone through, uh, which is carbonized uh, development. We can into go into decarbonized uh, development through uh, the use of green um, uh, energy. And this is, as uh, Marta said, it will require finance uh, to support it. More information on the topics discussed in this episode can be found linked in the show notes below. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Data Points wherever you get your podcasts. Berkeley Earth is a 501c3 nonprofit organization producing leading climate and environmental data and analysis. You can contribute to independent climate science by visiting donate.berkeleyearth.org today.